Section 12 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section 12 on Envy. A Dialogue. Hazlitt. I had a theory about envy at one time, which I have partly given up of late, which was that there was no such feeling, or that what is usually considered as envy, or dislike of real merit, is, more properly speaking, jealousy of false pretensions to it. I used to illustrate the argument by saying that this was the reason we were not envious of the dead, because their merit was established beyond the reach of cavil or contradiction, whereas we are jealous and uneasy at sudden and upstart popularity, which wants the seal of time to confirm it, and which, after all, may turn out to be false and hollow. There is no danger that the testimony of ages should be reversed, and we add our suffrages to it with confidence, and even with enthusiasm. But we doubt, reasonably enough, whether that which was applauded yesterday may not be condemned to-morrow, and are afraid of setting our names to a fraudulent claim to distinction. However satisfied we may be in our own minds, we are not sufficiently borne out by general opinion and sympathy to prevent certain misgivings and scruples on the subject. No one thinks, for instance, of denying the merit of Tenier in his particular style of art, and no one consequently thinks of envying him. The merit of Wilkie, on the contrary, was at first strongly contested, and there were other painters set up in opposition to him, till now that he has become a sort of classic in his way. He has ceased to be an object of envy or dislike, because no one doubts his real excellence, as far as it goes. He has no more than justice done him, and the mind never revolts at justice. It only rejects false or superficial claims to admiration, and is incensed to see the world take up with appearances, when they have no solid foundation to support them. We are not envious of Rubens or Raphael, because their fame is a pledge of their genius. But if any one were to bring forward the highest living names as equal to these, it immediately sets the blood in a ferment, and we try to stifle the sense we have of their merits, not because they are new or modern, but because we are not sure they will ever be old. Could we be certain that posterity would sanction our award, we should grant it without scruple, even to an enemy and a rival. Northcote, that which you describe is not envy. Envy is when you hate and would destroy all excellence that you do not yourself possess. So they say that Raphael, 
after he had copied the figures on one of the antique vases, endeavoured to deface them. And Hopner, it has been said, used to get pictures of Sir Joshua's into his possession, on purpose to paint them over and spoil them. Hazlitt. I do not believe the first, certainly. Raphael was too great a man, and with too fortunate a temper, to need or to wish to prop himself up on the ruins of others. As to Hopner, he might perhaps think that there was no good reason for the preference given to Sir Joshua's portraits over his own, that his women of quality were the more airy and fashionable of the two, and might be tempted, once perhaps, in a fit of spleen, of caprice or impatience, to blot what was an eyesore to himself from its old-fashioned, faded, dingy look, and at the same time dazzled others from the force of tradition and prejudice. Why, he might argue, should that old fellow run away with all the popularity, even among those who, as he well knew, in their hearts preferred his own insipid, flaunting style to any other? Though it might be true that Sir Joshua was the greater painter, yet it was not true that lords and ladies thought so. He felt that he ought to be their favourite, and he might naturally hate what was continually thrust in his dish, and, as far as those about him were concerned, unjustly set over his head. Besides, Hopner had very little of his own to rely on, and might wish by destroying to conceal the source from whence he had borrowed almost everything. Northcote. Did you never feel envy? Hazlitt. Very little, I think. In truth, I am out of the way of it, for the only pretension of which I am tenacious is that of being a metaphysician, and there is so little attention paid to this subject to pamper one's vanity, and so little fear of losing that little from competition, that there is scarcely any room for envy here. One occupies the niche of eminence in which one places oneself very quietly and contentedly. If I have ever felt this passion at all, it has been where some very paltry fellow has by trick and management contrived to obtain much more credit than he was entitled to. There was Blank, to whom I had a perfect antipathy. He was the antithesis of a man of genius, and yet he did better by mere dint of dullness than many men of genius. This was intolerable. There was something in the man, and in his manner, with which you could not possibly connect the idea of admiration, or of anything that was not merely mechanical. His look made the still air cold. He repelled all sympathy and cordiality. What he did, though amounting to mediocrity, was an insult on the understanding. It seemed that he should be able to do nothing, for he was nothing either in himself or in other people's idea of him. Mean actions or gross expressions too often unsettle one's theory of genius. We are unable, as well as unwilling, to connect the feeling of high intellect with low moral sentiment. The one is a kind of desecration of the other. I have for this reason been sometimes disposed to disparage Turner's fine landscapes, and be glad when he failed in his higher attempts, 
in order that my conception of the artist and his pictures might be more of a piece. This is not envy, or an impatience of extraordinary merit, but an impatience of the incongruities in human nature, and of the drawbacks and stumbling-blocks in the way of our admiration of it. Who is there that admires the author of Waverley more than I do? Who is there that despises Sir Walter Scott more? I do not like to think there should be a second instance of the same persons being the wisest, meanest of mankind, and should be heartily glad if the greatest genius of the age should turn out to be an honest man. The only thing that renders this misalliance between first-rate intellect and want of principle endurable is that such an extreme instance of it teaches us that great moral lesson of moderating our expectations of human perfection and enlarging our indulgence for human infirmity. Northcote. You start off with an idea as usual, and torture the plain state of the case into a paradox. There may be some truth in what you suppose, but malice or selfishness is at the bottom of the severity of your criticism, not the love of truth or justice, though you may make it the pretext. You are more angry at Sir Walter Scott's success than at his servility. You would give yourself no trouble about his poverty of spirit, if he had not made a hundred thousand pounds by his writings. The sting lies there, though you may try to conceal it from yourself. Hazlitt. I do not think so. I hate the sight of the Duke of Wellington for his foolish face, as much as for anything else. I cannot believe that a great general is contained under such a pasteboard visor of a man. This, you'll say, is party spite, and rage at his good fortune. I deny it. I always liked Lord Castlereagh for the gallant spirit that shone through his appearance, and his fine bust surmounted and crushed fifty orders that glittered beneath it. Nature seemed to have meant him for something better than he was. But in the other instance, fortune has evidently played nature a trick, to throw a cruel sunshine on a fool. Northcote. The truth is, you were reconciled to Lord Castlereagh's face, and patronised his person, because you felt a sort of advantage over him in point of style. His blunders qualified his success, and you fancied you could take his speeches in pieces, whereas you could not undo the battles that the other had won. Hazlitt. So I have been accused of denying the merits of Pitt, from political dislike and prejudice. But who is there that has praised Burke more than I have? It is a subject that I am never weary of, because I feel it. Northcote. You mean because he is dead, and is now little talked of and you think you show superior discernment and liberality by praising him. If there was a Burke club, you would say nothing about him. You deceive yourself as to your own motives, and weave a wrong theory out of them for human nature. The love of distinction is the ruling passion of the human mind. We grudge whatever draws off attention from ourselves to others, and all our actions are but different contrivances, either by sheer malice or affected liberality, to keep it to ourselves, or share it with others. Goldsmith was jealous even of beauty in the other sex. When the people at Amsterdam gathered round the balcony, 
to look at the Miss Hornecks, he grew impatient and said peevishly, There are places where I also am admired. It may be said, What could their beauty have to do with his reputation? No, it could not tend to lessen it, but it drew admiration from himself to them. So Mr. Croker, the other day, when he was at the Academy dinner, made himself conspicuous by displaying the same feeling. He found fault with everything, damned all the pictures, landscapes, portraits, busts, nothing pleased him, and not contented with this, he then fell foul of the art itself, which he treated as a piece of idle foolery, and said that Raphael had thrown away his time in doing what was not worth the trouble. This, besides being insincere, was a great breach of good manners, which none but a low-bred man would be guilty of. But he felt his own consequence annoyed. He saw a splendid exhibition of art, a splendid dinner set out, the nobility, the cabinet ministers, the branches of the royal family invited to it, the most eminent professors were there present. It was a triumph and a celebration of art, a dazzling proof of the height to which it had attained in this country, and of the esteem in which it was held. He felt that he played a very subordinate part in all this, and in order to relieve his own wounded vanity, he was determined, as he thought, to mortify that of others. He wanted to make himself of more importance than anybody else, by trampling on Raphael and on the art itself. It was ridiculous and disgusting, because everyone saw through the motive, so that he defeated his own object. Hazlitt. And he would have avoided this exposure, if with all his conceit and ill-humour he had had the smallest taste for the art, or perception, of the beauties of Raphael. He has just knowledge enough of drawing to make a whole-length sketch of Bonaparte, verging on caricature, yet not palpably outraging probability, so that it looked like a fat, stupid, commonplace man, or a flattering likeness of some legitimate monarch. He had skill, cunning, servility enough to do this with his own hand, and to circulate a print of it with zealous activity, as an indirect means of degrading him in appearance to that low level to which fortune had once raised him in reality. But the man who could do this deliberately, and with satisfaction to his own nature, was not the man to understand Raphael, and might slander him or any other, the greatest of earth's born, without injuring or belying any feeling of admiration or excellence in his own breast, for no such feeling had ever entered there. Northcote, come, this is always the way. Now you are growing personal. Why do you so constantly let your temper get the better of your reason? Hazlitt, because I hate a hypocrite, a time-server, and a slave. But to return to the question, and say no more about this talking potato, I do not think that, except in circumstances of peculiar aggravation, or of extraordinary ill-temper and moroseness of disposition, any one who has a thorough feeling of excellence, 
has a delight in gainsaying it. The excellence that we feel, we participate in, as if it were our own. It becomes ours by transfusion of mind. It is instilled into our hearts. It mingles with our blood. We are unwilling to allow merit, because we are unable to perceive it. But to be convinced of it, is to be ready to acknowledge and pay homage to it. Illiberality, or narrowness of feeling, is a narrowness of taste, a want of proper tact. A bigoted and exclusive spirit is real blindness to all excellence but our own, or that of some particular school or sect. I think I can give an instance of this in some friends of mine, on whom you will be disposed to have no more mercy than I have on Mr. Croker, I mean the Lake School. Their system of ostracism is not unnatural. It begins only with the natural limits of their tastes and feelings. Mr. Wordsworth, Mr. Coleridge, and Mr. Southey have no feeling for the excellence of Pope or Goldsmith or Gray. They do not enter at all into their merits and on that account it is that they deny, proscribe, and envy them. Incredulous Odi is the explanation here, and in all such cases. I am satisfied that the fine turn of thought in Pope, the gliding verse of Goldsmith, the brilliant diction of Gray, have no charms for the author of the lyrical ballads. He has no faculty in his mind to which these qualities of poetry address themselves. It is not an oppressive, galling sense of them, and a burning envy to rival them, and shame that he cannot. He would not if he could. He has no more ambition to write couplets like Pope than to turn a barrel organ. He has no pleasure in such poetry, and therefore he has no patience with others that have. The enthusiasm that they feel and express on the subject seems an effect without a cause, and puzzles and provokes the mind accordingly. Mr. Wordsworth, in particular, is narrower in his tastes than other people, because he sees everything from a single and original point of view. Whatever does not fall in strictly with this, he accounts no better than a delusion or a play upon words. Northcote. You mistake the matter altogether. The acting principle in their minds is an inveterate selfishness or desire of distinction. They see that a particular kind of excellence has been carried to its height, a height that they have no hope of arriving at. The road is stopped up. They must therefore strike into a different path, and in order to divert the public mind and draw attention to themselves, they affect to decry the old models and overturn what they cannot rival. They know they cannot write like Pope or Dryden, or would be only imitators if they did, and they consequently strive to gain an original and equal celebrity by singularity and affectation. Their simplicity is not natural to them, it is the forlorn hope of impotent and disappointed vanity. 
Hazlitt. I cannot think that. It may be so in part, but not principally or altogether. Their minds are cast in a peculiar mould, and they cannot produce nor receive any other impressions than those which they do. They are, as to matters of taste, très borné. Northcote, you make them out stupider than I thought. I have sometimes spoken disrespectfully of their talents, and so I think comparatively with those of some of our standard writers. But I certainly should never conceive them so lost to common sense as not to perceive the beauty or splendour or strength of Pope and Dryden. They are dazzled by it, and willfully shut their eyes to it, and try to throw dust in those of other people. We easily discern and are confounded by excellence, which we are conscious we should in vain attempt to equal. We may see that another is taller than ourselves, and yet we may know that we can never grow to his stature. A dwarf may easily envy a giant. Hazlitt. They would like the comparison to Polyphemus in Asis and Galatea better. They think that little men have run away with the prize of beauty. Northcote. No one admires poetry more than I do, or sees more beauties in it, though if I were to try for a thousand years, I should never be able to do anything to please myself. Hazlitt. Perhaps not in the mechanical part, but still you admire and are most struck with those passages in poetry that accord with the previous train of your own feelings and give you back the images of your own mind. There is something congenial in taste, at least, between ourselves and those whom we admire. I do not think there is any point of sympathy between Pope and the Lake School. On the contrary, I know there is an antipathy between them. When you speak of Titian, you look like him. I can understand how it is that you talk so well on that subject, and that your discourse has an extreme unction about it, a marrowiness like his colouring. But I do not believe that the late Mr. West had the least notion of Titian's peculiar excellences. He would think one of his own copies of him as good as the original, and his own historical compositions much better. He would therefore, I conceive, sit and listen to a conversation in praise of him, with something like impatience, and think it an interruption to more important discussions. On the principles of high art. But if Mr. West had ever seen in nature what there is to be found in Titian's copies from it, he would never have thought of such a comparison, and would have bowed his head in deep humility at the very mention of his name. He might not have been able to do like him, and yet might have seen nature with the same eyes. Northcote. We do not always admire most what we can do best but often the contrary. Sir Joshua's admiration of Michelangelo was perfectly sincere and unaffected, but yet nothing could be more diametrically opposite than the minds of the two men 
there was an absolute gulf between them. It was the consciousness of his own inability to execute such works that made him more sensible of the difficulty and the merit. It was the same with his fondness for Poussin. He was always exceedingly angry with me for not admiring him enough, but this showed his good sense and modesty. Sir Joshua was always on the lookout for whatever might enlarge his notions on the subject of his art and supply his defects, and did not, like some artists, measure all possible excellence by his own actual deficiencies. He thus improved and learned something daily. Others have lost their way by setting out with a pragmatical notion of their own self-sufficiency, and have never advanced a single step beyond their first crude conceptions. Fuseli was to blame in this respect. He did not want capacity or enthusiasm, but he had an overweening opinion of his own peculiar acquirements. Speaking of Van Dyck, he said he would not go across the way to see the finest portrait he had ever painted. He asked, What is it but a little bit of colour? Sir Joshua said, on hearing this, Aye, he'll live to repent it, and he has lived to repent it. With that little bit added to his own heap, he would have been a much greater painter, and a happier man. Hazlitt, yes, but I doubt whether he could have added it in practice. I think the indifference, in the first instance, arises from the want of taste and capacity. If Vasselli had possessed an eye for colour, he would not have despised it in Van Dyck. But we reduce others to the limits of our own capacity. We think little of what we cannot do, and envy it where we imagine that it meets with disproportioned admiration from others. A dull, pompous, and obscure writer has been heard to exclaim, That dunce, Wordsworth! This was excusable in one who is utterly without feeling for any objects in nature. But those who would make splendid furniture for a drawing-room, or any sentiment of the human heart, but that with which a slave looks up to a despot, or a despot looks down upon a slave. This contemptuous expression was an effusion of spleen and impatience at the idea that there should be any one who preferred Wordsworth's descriptions of a daisy or a linnet's nest to his auctioneer poetry about curtains and palls and sceptres and precious stones. But had Wordsworth, in addition to his original sin of simplicity and true genius, been a popular writer, his contempt would have turned into hatred. As it is, he tolerates his idle nonsense. There is a link of friendship in mutual political servility. And besides, he has a fellow feeling with him, as one of those writers of whose merits the world have not been fully sensible. Mr. Crowley set out with high pretensions, and had some idea of rivalling Lord Byron in a certain lofty, imposing style of versification. But he is probably by this time convinced that mere constitutional auteur 
as ill supplies the place of elevation of genius as of the pride of birth, and that the public know how to distinguish between a string of gaudy, painted, turgid phrases and the vivid creations of fancy or touching delineations of the human heart. Northcote. What did you say the writer's name was? Hazlitt. Crowley. He is one of the Royal Society of Authors. Northcote. I never heard of him. Is he an imitator of Lord Byron, did you say? Hazlitt. I am afraid neither he nor Lord Byron would have it thought so. Northcote. Such imitators do all the mischief, and bring real genius into disrepute. This is in some measure an excuse for those who have endeavoured to disparage Pope and Dryden. We have had a surfeit of imitations of them. Poetry, in the hands of a set of mechanic scribblers, had become such a tame, mawkish thing that we could endure it no longer, and our impatience of the abuse of a good thing transferred itself to the original source. It was this which enabled Wordsworth and the rest to raise up a new school, or to attempt it, on the ruins of Pope. Because a race of writers had succeeded him without one particle of his wit, sense, and delicacy, and the world were tired of their everlasting sing-song and namby-pamby. People were disgusted at hearing the faults of Pope, the part most easily imitated, cried up as his greatest excellence, and were willing to take refuge from such nauseous cant in any novelty. Hazlitt. What you now observe comes nearly to my account of the matter. Sir Andrew Wiley will sicken people of the author of Waverley. It was but the other day that someone was proposing that there should be a society formed for not reading the Scotch novels. But it is not the excellence of that fine writer that we are tired of, or revolt at, but vapid imitations, or catch-penny repetitions of himself. Even the quantity of them has an obvious tendency to lead to this effect. It lessens instead of increasing our admiration. For it seems to be an evidence that there is no difficulty in the task, and leads us to suspect something like trick or deception in their production. We have not been used to look upon works of genius as of the fungus tribe. Yet these are so. We had rather doubt our own taste than ascribe such a superiority of genius to another, that it works without consciousness or effort, executes the labour of a life in a few weeks, writes faster than the public can read, and scatters the rich materials of thought and feeling like so much chaff. Northcote. Aye, there it is. We had rather do anything than acknowledge the merit of another, if we have any possible excuse or evasion to help it. Depend upon it. You are glad Sir Walter Scott is a Tory, because it gives you an opportunity of qualifying your involuntary admiration of him. You would be sorry indeed if he were what you call an honest man. Envy is like a viper coiled up at the bottom of the heart, ready to spring upon and poison whatever approaches it. We live upon the vices, the imperfections, 
the misfortunes and disappointments of others as our natural food. We cannot bear a superior or an equal. Even our pretended cordial admiration is only a subterfuge of our vanity. By raising one, we proportionably lower and mortify others. Our self-love may perhaps be taken by surprise and thrown off its guard by novelty, but it soon recovers itself and begins to cool in its warmest expressions and find every possible fault. Ridicule, for this reason, is sure to prevail over truth, because the malice of mankind thrown into the scale gives the casting weight. We have one succession of authors, of painters, of favourites, after another, whom we hail in their turns, because they operate as a diversion to one another, and relieve us of the galling sense of the superiority of any one individual for any length of time. By changing the object of our admiration, we secretly persuade ourselves that there is no such thing as excellence. It is that which we hate above all things. It is the worm that gnaws us, that never dies. The mob shout when a king or a conqueror appears. They would take him and tear him to pieces, but that he is the scapegoat of their pride and vanity, and makes all other men appear like a herd of slaves and cowards. Instead of a thousand equals, we compound for one superior, and allay all heart-burnings and animosities among ourselves by giving the palm to the least worthy. This is the secret of monarchy. Loyalty is not the love of kings, but hatred and jealousy of mankind. A lackey rides behind his lord's coach and feels no envy of his master. Why? because he looks down and laughs in his borrowed finery at the ragged rabble below. Is it not so in our profession? What academician eats his dinner in peace, if a rival sits near him, if his own are not the most admired pictures in the room, or, in that case, if there are any others that are at all admired, and divide distinction with him? Is not every artifice used to place the pictures of other artists in the worst light. Do they not go there after their performances are hung up, and try to paint one another out? What is the case among players? Does not a favourite actor threaten to leave the stage, as soon as a new candidate for public favour is taken the least notice of? Would not a manager of a theatre, who has himself pretensions, sooner see it burnt down, than that it should be saved from ruin? and lifted into the full tide of public prosperity and favour by the efforts of one whom he conceives to have supplanted himself in the popular opinion. Do we not see an author, who has had a tragedy damned, sit at the play every night of a new performance for years after, in the hopes of gaining a new companion in defeat? Is it not an indelible offence to a picture-collector and patron of the arts, to hint that another has a fine head in his collection. Will any merchant in the city allow another to be worth a plum? What wit will applaud a bon mot by a rival? He sits uneasy and out of countenance, 
till he has made another which he thinks will make the company forget the first. Do women ever allow beauty in others? Observe the people in a country town, and see how they look at those who are better dressed than themselves. Listen to the talk in country places, and mind if it is composed of anything but slanders, gossip, and lies. Hazlitt. But don't you yourself admire Sir Joshua Reynolds? Northcote. Why, yes. I think I have no envy myself, and yet I have sometimes caught myself at it. I don't know that I do not admire Sir Joshua merely as a screen against the reputation of bad pictures. Hazlitt. Then, at any rate, what I say is true. We envy the good less than we do the bad. Northcote. I do not think so. And I am not sure that Sir Joshua himself did not admire Michelangelo to get rid of the superiority of Titian, Rubens, and Rembrandt, which pressed closer on him and galled his kybe more. Hazlitt. I should not think that at all unlikely. For I look upon Sir Joshua as rather a spiteful man, and always thought he could have little real feeling for the works of Michelangelo or Raphael, which he extolled so highly, or he would not have been insensible to their effect the first time he ever beheld them. Northcote. He liked Sir Peter Lely better. End of section 12